I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who is the skies can be compared to the Lord, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 89, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, November the 15th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look at the book of the Maccabees, from which um, the holiday of Hanukkah is drawn. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the only thing that most people know about the Maccabees. It was an important part of Jewish history um, because it it was when the people rose up and said enough is enough to the government because the government was doing things destructive of the Jewish faith and asking people to abandon their faith and their practices or to mix those practices in with everything else. And so the people finally stood up, led by this uh, clan, um, Judas Maccabeus and his clan, they stood up and said, no more. No, we're going to fight for this. We find uh, what you're doing repugnant, and we will not put up with it, and we will trust the Lord to provide everything that we need for this battle, because the battle belongs to him. And so you get this, and then uh, we're continuing in the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 20, verses 7 to 15, and then Matthew's gospel, the 17th chapter, the first 13 verses there. So it's a long lesson from the Maccabees today, actually. So his son, Judas, so remember his father, Mattathias, had been sort of the leader of this group before that. So then his son, Judas, who was called Maccabeus, took command in his place. Maccabeus means something like the hammer of God. So sometimes you'll see uh, people refer to themselves as the Jewish hammer or something like that, that Maccabeus was where that comes from. All his brothers and all who had joined his father helped him. They gladly fought for Israel. And then this is poetry about Judas Maccabeus. He extended the glory of his people like a giant. He put on his breastplate. He bound on his armor of war and waged battles, protecting the camp by his sword. He was like a lion in his deeds, like a lion's cub roaring for prey. He searched out and pursued those who broke the law. He burned those who troubled his people. Lawbreakers shrank back for fear of him. All the evildoers were confounded, and deliverance prospered by his hand. He embittered many kings. But he made Jacob glad by his deeds, and his memory is blessed forever. He went through the cities of Judah. He destroyed the ungodly out of the land. Thus he turned away wrath from Israel. He was renowned to the ends of the earth. He gathered in those who were perishing. That's the the poetic description of Judas Maccabeus. And then now we go back to the history. Apollonius now gathered together Gentiles and a large force from Samaria to fight against Israel. When Judas learned of it, he went out to meet him, and he defeated and killed him. Many were wounded and fell, and the rest fled. Then they seized their spoils, and Judas took the sword of Apollonius and used it in battle the rest of his life. So Samaria is sort of northwest of Jerusalem. When Saron, the commander of the Syrian army, which is just west of uh, the land, 
heard that Judas had gathered a large company, including a body of faithful soldiers who stayed with him and went out to battle, he said, I'll make a name for myself and win honor in the kingdom. I'll make war on Judas and his companions who scorned the king's command. Once again, a strong army of godless men went up with him to help him to take vengeance on the Israelites. So you want to curry favor with Rome is the the goal here, is to to curry the favor that's necessary to win sort of your um, side's uh, renown, but also to enrich yourself. You've proven yourself truly a friend of the emperor, which is the the goal, which is what was offered to Judas and his family before, if they would just come forward and, and make the appropriate sacrifices, then, then everything would be good, and they would be honored, and they would be friends of the king. And so that's what Saron, the commander of the Syrian army, has chosen to do here, is to win favor with the crown. When he approached the ascent of Beth, ascent of Beth Horon, Judas went out to meet him with a small company. But when they saw the army coming to meet them, they said to Judas, How can we, few as we are, fight against so great and strong a multitude? And we're faint. We've eaten nothing today. Similar to uh, a, a season in Saul's life, right? When Saul orders the people not to have anything to eat that day um, and to avenge a death. And then Jonathan finds um, honey in the lion and takes that honey and his eyes brighten and his strength is restored to him. And so here these people have eaten nothing all day. And Judas replied, it's easy for many to be hemmed in by a few. For in the sight of heaven, there's no difference between saving by many or by few. And that's a truly godly attitude. And it's an attitude that all the leaders, the true leaders of Israel have always had. It doesn't matter how few we are if the Lord fights on our size. He says, it's not the size of the army that victory in battle depends, but strength comes from heaven. They come out against us in great insolence and lawlessness to destroy us and our wives and our children and to despoil us. But we fight for our lives and our laws. He himself will crush them before us. As for you, do not be afraid of them. When he finished speaking, he rushed suddenly against Siron and his army, and they were crushed before him. They pursued them down the ascent of Beth Horon to the plain. Eight hundred of them fell, and the rest fled into the land of the Philistines. So, ill-considered move by Siron here to, to come against uh, Israel. And, and, and Judas clearly saw that the, the, the decider in battle was the Lord, not something else, not their force size, not their uh, weaponry or any of that stuff. It was simply the power of the Lord. And, and it, it was true again and again and again in Israelite history, beginning certainly with, um, with Pharaoh's army and then extending throughout the conquest of the land. They, they came against those who were numer- more numerous and larger than they, and, and, and still did the conquest. In the gospel today, this is another one of those gospels that, that comes up frequently because it's in all uh, three of the synoptic gospels we're told this story, and so it appears frequently in our readings, and this is one of those things that I, that I feel like I deal with all the time, sort of like the parable of the sower and the seeds. Here, that we got the transfiguration, in, in this passage today, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You know, there's not really an analog for that in the Old Testament. There's no place where where a person is transfigured from in the sight of others. The closest you could come would, I guess, be Elijah being taken up to heaven at the end, or Enoch. Um, 
being taken up to heaven as well. He walked with God, and then he was no more. And here, there's there's just no analog for this. But but it's interesting because some Jewish rabbis will point back to um, mystical teachings that had to do with the, the beginning of time and the beginning of sin coming into the world. And what they'll say is is that when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, it was because they were clothed in what would look like garments of light. So it would be the Shekinah glory of God on them. And then after sin, and that made them authenticated as God's representatives on the earth. And it, and it also there was a fear of, of the rest of creation of humankind because of that. And so when they sinned, now they were naked and uh, afraid. It's because that protective covering had been taken away, according to rabbinic teaching. Now, this is, hear me on that, just as according to rabbinic teaching, but I think it lines up really well with transfiguration here, because uh, I think what happens here is exactly that. But Jesus is transfigured from the inside out, so the veil that was covering his glory is removed here in the um, in the episode of the transfiguration on the mountain. It's the opposite of what happened with Adam and Eve. His righteousness shone through. His godliness shone through in a way that that theirs was only imposed on them by God, but then taken away by sin. And, and it's a picture of us as well. When we are clothed with Christ, we put on his righteousness in this same way. And if we thought about it that way— that that if if these if our if if we could think about putting on that righteousness in the same way that Adam and Eve did, then maybe it would be a great restraint on us because we wouldn't want to do anything to defile the righteous garments that we had been given. It's sort of like when when you're a kid, right, and, and you dress up and you go to church, and and then everybody wants you to make sure you take care of your church clothes and not do anything to get those things dirty, and, and so we take special care of those things, and and that's. The way we can talk about putting on Christ, being clothed with Christ, is thinking about it in these kinds of terms about the transfiguration, where we're clothed in his righteousness, and what would what do we do to maintain that and make sure that we don't end up like Joshua the high priest and Zechariah in filthy rags. And so it's the way that we are to put on Christ and be clothed with him is, a, is one takeaway from how we can interpret this whole transfiguration. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So tent would obviously not be a very good translation of the word here. It would be more like a booth because Peter's not going to make a tent for them up there on the side of the mountain. They're going to make a, a dwelling place for them there as a show of hospitality. And, and hopefully we're going to stay here a while and we'll all have a nice little convo. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So there's no question about who this voice is telling them to listen to because there's only one left. And so that's Jesus. And so as great as Moses and Elijah were and are in this passage and so many others, Jesus is lifted up higher than anybody has ever been in Judaism. 
And the disciples, these three disciples at least, see this and hear this, that they know what's going on. Now, the question is, how did, how did Peter know this was Elijah and Moses? And we don't know. We have no earthly idea how he could have recognized them in that way. But, but the point is, is, is that no matter how great they are, Jesus is on a different plane, a completely different plane. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And they asked him then, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will almost will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So they, they realized that John the Baptist was the one who would come before Messiah, as prophesied in Malachi, that would restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And so the, the, how is that mission accomplished in John's ministry? Well, it, he was preparing the way, as John said. He was the one who was the voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah. And so he is preparing the way of the Lord, but he's preparing the people to receive the Messiah who is to come. And so that's the job of Elijah is as the forerunner to one who is greater. And the one who is greater, Jesus says, is me. <clears throat> In the book of the Revelation passage today, what we got is the thousand years when Satan was ruling on the earth or ended, he'll be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the... Na- oh, I'm sorry, not when Satan was ruling on the... but when Jesus and the saints were ruling. Then Satan's released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, for their number is like the sand of the sea, which is certainly an allusion to the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven or as the sand of the sea. And so here we see the opposite of that happening in the same kind of way, way we saw it in the reading from Maccabees. The, the intention would be to say this is an army far greater than anything that's mustered in opposition to it. And then they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down and consumed them. So this is the final battle. So if we, if we gird ourselves up for that battle, then, then the Lord fights that battle for us. So the battle of Armageddon is a battle that's never fought. They array for battle, come up against the saints, and then the fire comes down and consumes them in the same way that fire came down and consumed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah back in the day. And so this evil, this wickedness is punished. And the, <clears throat> and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Then, after the battle that wasn't a battle, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So everything rolls back and rolls away, all the created order. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You know, it, there are so many people will tell you that, that it's, not a, it's not works. It's not works. It's faith alone. Yes, our salvation comes by faith, but the way that we walk out and work out our salvation has to do with the way we live our lives, has to do in the ways in which we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Those are the important things. It's, it's doing what Jesus did, proclaiming the kingdom, doing the work that he gave his disciples to do, which is go and proclaim the kingdom, baptize, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. It's, it's the walking out of the Great Commission. So are we doing that? Or are we just saying, I have faith? Well, if nobody knows about that faith, then it's not efficacious, is the honest truth. It, it, there's got to be an active component to that faith. <clears throat> and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So those who had drowned and were at sea and whose bodies were never recovered, those who had died and had gone to the place of the dead awaiting this final judgment are the, the ones in death and Hades. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so that, this is the way that some people come up with the idea that, that this judgment, ultimately, this lake of fire consumes everything. And so there's no sort of permanent place of suffering that it, that it is swallowed up itself by the lake of fire, because everything ultimately is thrown into the lake of fire. And, and so there's an assumption then that, that everything that's not of God is not only judged, but also consumed and destroyed. Now, I have no earthly idea how it all ends. That there, there's something more pleasing to me about that prospect than, than sort of eternal suffering for people, but, but I honestly don't know. And Jesus kind of alludes to a different way of uh, thinking about the future and, and eternity. But at, at any rate, the point in all of this is, is that if we are on his side, then no, nothing can stand against us, that, that we just have to make sure that we're taking the right side. It doesn't mean that we'll win every battle. It doesn't mean that God's people are never defeated, destroyed, or die. It just means that we need to be careful which side we're on, and we need to be careful about which side we're on every day, all day.